Good morning, Tara. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Bernie. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Are we starting to look forward to Thanksgiving a little bit? A little bit? Last year, we did a sign-up sheet. If you happen to not have someone to celebrate or a family to celebrate Thanksgiving with, um, whatever your circumstances are, if you're, or if you're in, you're in college and you are not going uh, home for the, for the holiday, last year we had a sign-up sheet to connect people with other people to celebrate, and nobody signed up. So we're not going to do that again. But if you're here and you're thinking, but I'm not, I don't have somewhere to go celebrate this year, and I would love to be able to do that, you can reach out to me, and I'll be driving to Kansas City, so you probably are not going to come with me. But I can connect you with people that would love to celebrate Thanksgiving with you this year. So please, no one has to, has to miss out on celebrating. So if you can come up, talk to me, I'll, I'll connect you. You can email me at Tori, T-O-R-Y, at terranovachurch.org, and, and we can all celebrate Thanksgiving uh, together this year. So wanted to mention that. Before we dig into this, this passage in Hebrews 12, 3 to 17, you might notice the word that was repeated nine times. Discipline, 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 discipline. Nine times in the first 14 verses. Um, but what I'd like to do is pray real quick, and then we'll jump into those verses. 
Father, we, when we hear the word discipline, we have different experiences. We, we handle that differently, God. Uh, for some of us, it's going to be really challenging to, to think of you in terms of a God who, who disciplines us. And for others, Lord, we, we may see and understand and appreciate the value of that and have had good examples of that growing up. Uh, but still there are things we need to unlearn as we approach you, our perfect heavenly Father. So help us, God, as we engage with your word, as we um, connect with you this morning. Teach us, help us to know you more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I hear the word discipline, I don't jump up for joy. I don't start getting really excited. It's not the first thing I'll do usually when I, when I hear it, even with a a really good example of what discipline looks like growing up as a kid. But when we read about God's discipline, it can, or we could even say it should be something that we are glad about. Why? Because he always does it perfectly out of love, exactly how we need it. He never pauses his love to say, now I'm going to discipline. It's always perfectly part of his love. And as we see in the passage, he's working towards our peace, towards our holiness, and he'll use discipline as a means to get us there. If you remember last week, we were running a race. You guys remember running a race? Okay. We were running a race of faith. And part of that message was about the fact that there's no greater ambition than to run towards the Lord. What greater reason is there? What greater motivation is there than to run towards the God who made us, loves us, Jesus? Like, what greater reason is there to run? And what we see in today's passage is that God has an even greater motivation than we do to get us there. And he'll use discipline as part of a means to ensure that we get to the end of the race. That's what we see. So the main idea for Hebrews 12, 3 to 17, I would say, is this. Endure hardships. I could have said discipline there, but the fact is, and we'll get into it, we don't always know when we're going through suffering, is this discipline? Is this something else? So I use hardships. Endure hardships knowing that the Lord disciplines all his children for their holiness and peace. That's what I see in Hebrews 12, 3 to 17. Endure hardships, all of them knowing that the Lord disciplines all his children for their holiness and peace. There's the main idea. So the direction, the roadmap, we see in the first 14 verses, it's a lot about discipline. Discipline for God's children. Again, nine times the word is used, so we're going to talk about discipline this morning. And then secondly, it ends in verses 15 through 17 with this dire warning for those who reject Christ, for those who have not, if you will, started the race of faith, who don't believe. If you've been with us for Hebrews so far, you know that there have been several warnings already. This is nothing new, but he comes right out and says it. Make sure none of you have failed to obtain the grace of God. It's the second to the last warning in Hebrews, but that's where we'll end up in the last couple of verses, 15 through 17. So first, discipline for God's children, verses 1 through 14. What I'd like to do is talk about discipline generally. We'll get a definition. Is there a, dif a difference between 
how we may in our society describe discipline versus discipline from God, and I'll have a couple uh, definitions up there for you. But then we're going to look at verse 3 at the beginning of the passage, and he, he immediately points our attention to Jesus and how to, how to engage with suffering as he did. And then after that, in verses 4 to 8, there's this expectation that all of us are going to experience hardship from God as part of the way he disciplines us. And then 9, 9 through 14 is about how this contrast between earthly fathers, earthly parents, and their discipline, and our, our perfect heavenly father and his discipline. So first, let's talk a little bit about discipline in general. So what is discipline? I have a definition here for you. If you look up the word, this is generally what you're going to find. Practice of training an individual or group to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience when necessary. Right? That makes sense. That's about what we would think of when we think of what is discipline. And ideally, discipline is good and right and needed in the world, right? For order, for to develop a sense of consistency, for productivity. Without, without discipline, it's gonna be a mess. Any group, any, any trying to achieve any kind of goal or grow into, into a certain kind of um, code of behavior, it's gonna be really difficult, difficult without some kind of discipline. It's, it's necessary, it's good, it's right. But we also know, don't we, that there's no rules, there's no regulations, there's no laws that are going to change people's hearts. You can't force that. You can try to impose so that there's a certain kind of behavior that happens, but you can never get to the heart by saying, now this rule is really what's going to change you and what you care about and what you, right? And how often don't we know that discipline in the world can often be a disguise for domination and power and selfish wanting to control and, and have order, right? So a little bit about discipline in general. But then we have discipline from God. And I got this definition by looking at several passages in the ways that discipline is used in Scripture. And this is what I came up with. Discipline from God is training his people to be more like Jesus through instruction and correction, you could say teaching. It's translated in some of those verses. And through instruction, correction, with affliction when necessary. When necessary. And God knows exactly when it's necessary and what it looks like. But what, what discipline from God is, is it's moving us, it's guiding us toward spiritual maturity. And it's always for our good, and it's always for God's glory. It's perfect discipline from our perfect heavenly Father. Some of you are thinking something like, that's fantastic, I still don't like it. I still don't want this to be part of life or part of what it means to follow God, that God would discipline. And I would encourage you to wait to the end of the message. I have a quote that I think is gold about discipline, that even if nothing else hits you or meets you during this message, hopefully the quote at the end will by someone who says it a lot better than I could. So, discipline from God, it's perfect. He jumps into verse 3 to give us an example, because remember at the beginning of last week's passage in Hebrews 12, he says, while you're running, while you're enduring in this race, in this race 
of faith, dropping everything, laying aside everything that's, that weighs you down and sin which clings so closely. And then he says, look to Jesus, not just glance at him five miles down, five years into the race. Consistently focus on Jesus the whole race, on him. And then when he starts talking about this topic of discipline and, and hardships, he also points our attention to Jesus, verse 3. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying when you're going through a hardship or a challenge or some kind of suffering, consider Christ. Look to Jesus. So hold on a second. Jesus never sinned, right? We know this. This is, this is a fact. He was tempted in all the ways we are, and yet never sinned, Hebrews 6. Yes, Hebrews 5 says he, he learned obedience through suffering, but that suffering was never a result of Jesus sinned and needs to be disciplined for God to get him back on the right track. It just never happened. He never sinned. So none of his suffering was ever his fault. Okay? When we talk about our own suffering, the question can come up. And can I just say, I have... I still likely have more questions about this topic than I do answers. Can I just say that? But when we suffer, the question may come up, and I've thought to myself before, am I, endure, am I going through this suffering because of personal sin? Another way to say it, is all personal suffering due to personal sin? I believe strongly the answer to that is no. It's no. If you go through the book of Job and you look at his life, what happens? He experienced tremendous loss, tremendous tragedy. And when we see in the story, it's not, those things didn't happen because Job did some tremendous or secret sin and so God is disciplining him. It makes it clear it wasn't because of that. And even at the end of the, of the story, though, when he encounters God, he's not given an answer of exactly why it happened. God was enough. Simply encountering God was enough for Job. And here's, here's we're not always going to know. Let me say it another way. I think we often don't know. When you're going through suffering, hardship, is this because God wants to deal with a sin? Like, is he trying to discipline me and help me get on back on the right track because of something? I've, is this because of my own sin, consequences of my own mistakes? Or is it because of what someone else has done? We suffer because of other people's sins. Or is it because we're a post-Genesis 3 world with, with, with some chaos and disorder and, and the world's nowhere near the way it's supposed to be, not perfect at all, and so, and so we suffer. We're not going to always know why. I wish that I could know more concretely why things are the way they are. But we don't always know. And hopefully it's got to be enough for Job as it is for us to know that God does know. And God is in control of the whole universe, including the moral universe that he's made and why things happen the way they do. God knows. So, we don't know necessarily if all of our, when we're suffering, is this because of sin that God's disciplining. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus' suffering was never because of his sin. 
And if you think about that, have you ever thought about Jesus's, he had, uh, he had half brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about what it would be like growing up with Jesus as your half brother or half sister? You could jump right to all the incredible, like, yeah, I would volunteer. I would love, like, that'd be amazing. But at the same time, when did they quit, the half-brothers and sisters? When did they stop trying to blame Jesus when Mary and Joseph got home about why something went wrong? Like, after a while, they probably were like, stop trying to blame Jesus. We know he didn't do it. He's never going to join you in time out. He doesn't, he doesn't sin. So, even though he never sinned, and all of his suffering, all of it, every second of it, was not because of his fault. How did he respond to suffering? 1 Peter 2.23 tells us, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He always committed himself to God, the, the just judge. And he believed that God was working it for a greater joy, for a great reason. Remember, for the joy set before him. So whenever we're going through something, I wish I could know more clearly why we're going through a suffering, what exactly God is trying to teach us or show us. Is it because of someone else? Is it because of me? Is it because of where I was born or how I was raised? or where? I don't know. But no matter what it is, we can commit ourselves to God, like Jesus, the, the, what he, the example he gives us here. Commit ourselves to the faithful judge and with joy believe God's working it for something. No matter what it is, God will use it to grow us, to shape us, to mature us, to make us more like Jesus, no matter what it is or why it's happening. So, the example of Jesus. And then in verses four to eight, he begins to tell us to expect hardships from God. Look at verse four first. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Stop a second. So we know, going through Hebrews, that they, the Hebrew Christians in the first century, had experienced persecution in the past. Remember, you, you joyfully allowed your goods to be plundered. You stood alongside men and women that were thrown in prison for their faith. You've experienced hardships before. But what he's telling them now, something that I'll just say surprised me in reading it and getting ready this week for it, was that what was coming next around the corner, we don't know exactly how long, maybe it was 70 AD when the Romans destroyed everything and killed many of them, when he says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, your struggle against sin hasn't been that difficult yet. But what he's about to say is even that can be disciplined from God. So this next part I find pretty difficult of how extreme God's discipline can be. Look at verses 5 through 8. First look at 5 through 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In quoting Proverbs 3, he's telling the Hebrews that the coming bloodshed that you're going to face, that you're going to experience, 
is part of God's discipline. Even that. We said before, in, the def- in God's discipline of his people, it's not always affliction. It could be teaching, correction, rebuke. But it can be affliction. It can be physical pain that he allows us to go through. And it can be really extreme. The word for chastises there in verse 6 is a word, it's, it means scourge. It means whip. That's severe. And I think something to learn from this is that there's no amount of pain that we may go through in life where we can say, well, that's it. I've crossed the line between something that's difficult and painful in my life to the point where it can't be God now. It's too much. I don't think we can say that. His discipline can be extreme. Here's something else that's true and hard. His discipline can even be death. Have you heard me say that before? I know I've said it at least once, maybe twice. God's discipline can be even death for the believer, for a child of God. He may end our life if he deems that necessary and best for us. What do you mean? Where do you find that? 1 Corinthians 5. There's a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 5, you have a person, a man, that was having relations with his mother-in-law, and the church wasn't stopping it. Instead, they were celebrating the freedoms that they would say they have in, in, in having a relationship with Christ and being saved, and that means you can live exa- however you want, and God doesn't care. They were even celebrating it. And the discipline for that ended up being death for that person. You keep going in 1 Corinthians 11, and some in the church were deciding they weren't going to wait for the whole church to get there to celebrate communion. In fact, some of them were going to get wasted. They're going to get drunk during, during church. And the discipline for that, some was getting sick, and others even died, it says in 1 Corinthians 11. God's discipline can be extreme. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, it's a good thing that I'm not, uh, you know, having an incestuous relationship or getting drunk during, during communion when people are here because then maybe God might discipline me. Do you know that in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, these are believers in the church, tell a lie to the apostles, which they will say, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the discipline for that was? Death. Both of them. It wasn't Peter that said, now it's time, you're dying. The Holy Spirit dropped them dead. They died. Many might have said, oh, that's just, it's a coincidence. This one had a heart attack and this one had, I don't know. But that's what scripture tells us was the discipline at that time for, for, for lying. How many of us, if God decided to show up, sometimes I, oh man. Sometimes we have to be careful what we wish for. If God would show up in power. How many of you, how many of us have lied today, last week? How many of you have gossiped this past week? And God could decide justly and rightly to end it right now. I think a healthy fear of God is something that maybe we overlook sometimes. I don't know why God chooses to be swift and severe at times in his discipline for his people, and at other times, 
chance after chance after chance to turn from that and to, to, to live for him and turn away from those, from those sins? Look, they're all forgiven. That's not a question. They're all nailed to the cross, forgiven once and for all. What we see is even disciplines as extreme as death, look at 1 Corinthians 5, is so that the person's soul may be saved. Because there's something worse if God didn't decide to, in his love, discipline at that moment. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, and that's after the people getting drunk during communion, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's like, that's worse, a lot worse. A lot worse. But there's no easy way around this. God's discipline can be extreme. And then we see in verses 7 through 8 that in some way his discipline is for all of his children. Look at 7 through 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, God will, in his love, teach, correct, afflict when necessary, to ensure that we are, talk about that race of faith again, right? Not veering off, going the right direction towards him. He'll do it. If not, he says, then we are illegitimate and not sons. I was, I was hearing, I forget where I read this, but there some, many Romans would have children outside of just their, of their spouse. And they, they'd be called illegitimate children. And they would often not discipline those kids. They would not train them up, prepare them in the same way that they would their own from, from their wife. And, and they would not receive the inheritance when the parents passed away, illegitimate in that, in that sense, not receiving the inheritance. But the children of God, men and women, and if you're getting frustrated as a female, like, why does it keep saying son, 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 son? It can be, it is both sons and daughters. In salvation, Galatians 3, we are all, no, no, um, no, no difference, men and women, one in Christ. And right after that, Galatians 3.28, heirs, heirs, true, legitimate men and women, we are sons of God. And I'll, I'll, I've said this before too, if the guys get annoyed at being called the bride of Christ, deal with that too. That's also <laughs> us, okay? So it's both sides. If you love your kid, you discipline them. And God does that in some way with every single one of his children. So, if you love your kid, you discipline them. Now, I was told that if you want to upset a group of people, there are a couple topics you can mention to get them frustrated, angry at you. Do I want to talk about this for this moment? No. Is it here so I have to? Yes. How do you parent your children well with discipline? There's one of the topics. Tell a group how to discipline, how to train their kids, and they'll, you're going to get some people upset at you. So, all right, that's fine. I actually really don't like when people are upset with me, but it's part of what I have to do. So go ahead, talk to me afterwards, send me an email, come on by the office, we'll talk about it. I just want to say one simple thing, which I'll take just directly from the word of God. Disciplining 
your children is something that is healthy for them, okay? Physical discipline, question mark? Bigger, ongoing, like just big disagreements about that, um, especially right in the last, what, 10, 20 years, am I, am I off? Of that question, is physical discipline appropriate for your children? The Proverbs have quite a bit to say about that. One is, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. There's another proverb that says, if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> the idea is that physical discipline is, is certainly along the bounds of acceptable according to scripture. Does that mean it has to be physical and your kid can learn a different way and that's working? Then, then great. But are they, are they learning? Are they growing? Are, is it, are you able to discipline them? Uh, physical discipline is certainly an acceptable way of doing it, according to multiple verses you can find in Scripture. Now, at the same time, can that be abused? Absolutely. Can that be done incorrectly? Absolutely. I'm sure there are more than one, multiple people in here that you hear the word discipline and your mind goes to where that was done really terribly as a kid growing up. And it's, it's harder to know God. One of the ways we, we can... We can reach people in talking about the Lord. If they have a really bad relationship with their parents, you better believe that's going to affect how they view God. It's going to affect it. So, how can it be abused? There's a couple questions I would want to ask. First of all, the parent should not enjoy disciplining their kid. It says in Lamentations 3 that God does not afflict from the heart. It's not something that should be really an enjoyable process to discipline your kid. Secondly, it should ne- I don't think it should ever be done out of anger. It should be in a level-headed, again, with the, God never pauses his love to discipline, right? It's always for the best interests of those he's disciplining. And for a parent, if it's done out of rage and you haven't taken a breath and you're mad and then you go and you physically discipline, that can be a problem. And then third, going too far and injuring the kid is, of course, awful. It should be a momentary kind of discipline that should not last, should not be an injury. Okay? I probably already said too much, but that's generally some thoughts that I wanted to share on that. God's discipline, it can be extreme. God's discipline is for each one of his children and it's always out of his love, and it's always to avoid worse future pain. If a kid never hears no and is never corrected and is never disciplined, you better believe the life in the future is gonna be really hard for that kid. It's always to avoid worse future pain. Let me tell you a quick story. So my parents have an external fireplace in their house. And we were told as kids, I have two older brothers and a little sister, it's four of us, and we were all told the same thing, don't touch the fireplace. Pretty simple instructions, it's hot. All of us listened except for one of us, (laughs) my little sister. One day she decided, and she was like four or five years old, she was young, she decided to touch the thing. And we had a fun ER visit that night. Now, let's talk about her before and after pain. What was her pain like 
before touching the fireplace. The pain of if dad snatched her hand other times when she tried to, right? Grabbing it away, that might have hurt. The, the mental pain of dad, what are you holding out on me? Like, what am, what am I not getting? Like, this is just constricting this, this, this rule that you've given to me. It's just hard. I don't know, that, that kind of pain. Versus the pain of touching the fireplace. Because after she touched it, she never touched it again. This I know. <laughs> never again. Because that pain was a whole lot worse than the pain of touching the fireplace. When it comes to our own decisions of whether we decide, am I going to listen to what God has said in his commands, or am I not, the sin burn is not always immediate. It's not always right away and swift and severe. But when we think about God's discipline and a way to, to really cry out to him can be God, no matter what it is of how I live, relationships and all you've told me of how to live relationally, how to live and use my body sexually, how to use the resources you've given to me financially, what I do as far as eating and drinking and where I go and every part of my life, God, Help me follow you and be in line with your way because I know it's worse. Even if I don't believe it or experience it in the here and the now, it's worse later if you don't do the discipline. So, God's discipline can be extreme. God's discipline is to avoid worse future pain and it is for every child of God. So, now he gets into some examples of earthly fathers versus our heavenly father. And I got an example for you in my own life there too. So 9 to 14. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, this comparison of earthly parents, earthly fathers, and our heavenly father... What he's saying is, parents often did do their best. You have a short, you have limited time, you have limited wisdom, limited experience to do your best to discipline your children. And as it says in verse 11, it's not pleasant at the time, but rather painful for them. All discipline at the time is painful, not pleasant at the time. So... Talk, thinking about our, how our earthly parents, how our parents have done that in the past, or whoever was in charge of disciplining you as a kid, how do they do it? Yes, teaching, correction, instruction, all of those things, but the painful times, what was that like? So for me, my dad had a wooden, uh, what do you call it, pallet that he called Brutus. 
And now when I say that out loud of like naming it, that's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but we all laughed about it. It was a joke, Dad. We got it. But he named it Brute. And so wooden pallet, I don't know if that's the right word, wooden like paddle, thank you. Oh my gosh. So I don't know if you got the belt for you guys or like I heard soap was one, which is, that's rough. But maybe that's how you did it. Soap, like you, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's what he used, Brutus. And at the time, I can tell you very confidently, none of my siblings and I ever said, as he's taken out Brutus to do some discipline, thank you, Dad, this is what we need for us for the future so that we can be better children and better disciplined to be able to face on the world and make better decisions in the future and all those things. None of us ever did that. It was just painful at the time. But now, yes, okay, I can say, thank you, Dad, for disciplining us as children. It is what we needed. It is for the best. The point is, if we can see some good reasons for parents to discipline, even with their limited wisdom, their limited time, how much more should we entrust ourselves to the Father of Spirits, God himself, who doesn't have limited time, but has, he's, he's eternal, and he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, all of that. We can entrust ourselves to him, he will, he will have fair, right discipline. Some of you, when we did the message of the, the older brother earlier in Hebrews, you're like waiting for the time. I'm going to pick on the younger one. Here's your time. I got it. So I know there are many times where parents will become less strict as, the child, like the, as there's more and more. My oldest brother will often complain, how come... Kid number three, he has a name, okay, it's fine. Kid number three, how come he's got less discipline than I did, right? But God has fair discipline exactly as we need it. Deuteronomy 8 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Have we had enough of discipline for topic of it for a little while. Okay, well, here's something worse. The dire warning for those who reject Christ in verses 15 through 17. Here's what it says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, here's, here's what I'm going to say about this. This is the second to last warning in Hebrews. There have been some pretty severe ones. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, where he says, take care, brothers, in case there is in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Then we got to Hebrews chapter 6 with those who were the, the milky babies, spiritually immature, not wanting to grow, not wanting to, to learn more or dig into the word. And he's saying that there was a chance that that could reveal a heart of bitterness that's not, that doesn't know the Lord either. And then in Hebrews 10, the warning for those who are persistently rejecting, like un intentionally rejecting God's commands and not following him, the warning is that could reveal a heart that doesn't know God as well. And now he just comes right out and says it. Make sure that there are none among you. Make sure 
that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, just plainly says it, to the church. Make sure all of you know him. Make sure all of you are actually on that race of faith, that you believe in Jesus, that you're confident in him. Make sure. If it hasn't, you may see this root of bitterness, which he takes from Deuteronomy 29. For those that were turning away from God to other gods, those, any, any of us who truly are living for something or someone other than God, and hearing throughout Hebrews, Jesus is better than, better than, better than, better than, better than. But if in your heart of hearts you are actually living for some, something else, someone else is better than God, that is cause for concern. And not living for him, this root of bitterness, it can be, it says it can affect many. This is part of the reason that church discipline exists, right? And church discipline you read through church history and you wonder, did they actually, did some of them read? It's not God, it's not us doing the physical discipline on people. We don't do that, just so you know. But the removing bits of fellowship, communion, ministry that you're in, that separation that happens when someone is consistently showing signs that they're not following Christ not a brother or sister, even when they claim to be. That growing separation is to warn the person of the potential separation that's there between them and God. Be reconciled to God, and then be reconciled to the church. This warning is for the church. And then he ends with the example of Esau. Even though in tears he wanted to undo what he did in giving away his inheritance for a temporary Relief for temporary pleasure, the bowl of soup. He couldn't go back and change it. And, and what I'm saying about this for us is, don't think, and I've heard this from many people over the years, don't think that you can be the one who just lives however, the, however you want to, and then at the very end of your life on your deathbed, if you get a deathbed experience, then I'll cry out to Jesus. Then I'll ask him to forgive me and change me. Don't do that. Don't wait. Don't do that. Let him save you. Cry out to him now. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as we learned earlier in Hebrews. The warning is for those in the church that don't truly have the gospel rooted in them, who don't have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus. It's a real warning. And there's one more warning to go before we finish up Hebrews. So, if any of these things regarding discipline, maybe there's questions in your own mind that you want to bring to God about that topic, about this passage, or there's someone you want to pray for, there'll be people available for you in the corner to pray after the service today, any reason, any reason at all. But what I'd like to do uh, to, end the serve, to end the message today, uh, something a little different, I want to read to you a quote from someone um, who you would probably recognize the name. His name is C.S. Lewis. Christian author, um, and he has probably my favorite quote when it comes to the discipline of God and why it's there. So I'm going to end with that quote. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I'm reading it. Listen to this quote about discipline. The problem is love. 
when we think this way, we want God to love us less. When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you got one. The great spirit you so lightly invoke, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world's persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How, how, how this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creature, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in the Creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. What we would here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall in fact be happy. God loves us not because we're lovable, but because he is love. And because he is love, he can only will what is best for us, which is to be transformed into a being of holy love like himself. He will settle for nothing less. Amen.